0: Um, I picked this text because I felt like it's what I needed to hear. Um, It's not hard to see that everywhere in America, uh, people are going through rough times. There's division everywhere, and in fact, division seems to be the one thing we can agree on. There's enmity among people, even in the same families. We are having a civil culture war, and many of us have enlisted in it, probably even unknowingly. I've been feeling sad and discouraged by the state of the country that I love. For the first time in my life, the future of America seems uncertain and troubled. United we stand, divided we fall. And not only just the country, but I also find it more importantly in the church that I love. I think the church might be losing its way. The church is taking its cues, it seems, from the world. And there's rumors of church splits and people even speaking of as many as five or six types of evangelical moving forward. The churches seem to internalize the outside civil culture war. Uh, according to recent Barna polls, people see evangelicals increasingly as po- a political entity as opposed to a religious one. It's no wonder that across the board, Christianity's numbers are declining in America. My question is, what does God think of all of this? I don't think I'm alone when I say that I've been needing deep and profound encouragement from God. As I thought about this and what I needed to hear right now, I kept coming back to the Beatitudes, the pithy little sayings of Jesus towards the beginning of his ministry describing what his kingdom is like. Beatitude uh, simply comes from the, word, uh, the Latin word for blessing. And I needed to be reminded of the goodness of Jesus' kingdom, that he is in control, and that what we are experiencing is exactly what he told us to experience. What we need when the world feels dark is not a renewed optimism in the world, but a reminder of the light of Christ's kingdom and a reminder that the two are very different from one another. And I found this passage both encouraging and challenging, but presenting a way forward for the church in America and truly for the church, the church everywhere in every age. A new horizon based on the original blueprint called the kingdom of Christ. To quote former President Harry Truman, I do not believe there is a problem in the, this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. So just by way of context in Matthew, the beginning of Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus' kingdom. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy connecting Jesus to the kingly line of David. And then in chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus by offering him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, to which Jesus resists. Then later in that chapter, it says, From that time Jesus began preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now in this passage, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with a look at what life in his kingdom is like. Some have rightly called the Sermon on the Mount a new Torah, God's instruction for how his people are to live. This is practical, real-world guidance for following God in a troubled world. So what kind of kingdom is it? Well, it's going to look exactly opposite from everything we've seen from all of the kingdoms of this world. It's an inverted kingdom, meaning that it reorients all of the values people normally hold. Jesus is serving as tour guide here of what his kingdom is like. and perhaps it's different uh, and perhaps in a, a way that's different than we're used to, I'm simply going to use the text as the outline for this sermon. So uh, my points are the eight Beatitudes themselves. So let's listen as Jesus gives us a, a policy town hall of His inverted kingdom. Beatitude one: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit isn't language we're very familiar with. And a lot of commentators, wrongly, I think, interpret this beatitude as showing our relationship to God or how we become a Christian. So they interpret poor in spirit as something like spiritual bankruptcy before God, which is, of course, a biblical concept, but I think it's problematic here for a few reasons. First, citizenship in Christ's kingdom is already presumed. John 3, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a gracious act of God to enter the kingdom. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is by invitation only. Next, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about how to live in this world, not how you become a Christian, and I believe the Beatitudes are no different. And finally, not all of the Beatitudes can even be applied to our relationship to God. Otherwise, how would we make sense of peacemaking or persecution? um, Instead, I believe the Beatitudes are about how we relate to other people once you are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. So what does poor in spirit mean? This phrase isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament or in the Old Testament Septuagint um, translation. So what is Jesus alluding to? I think Jesus is here alluding to the end of Isaiah, which predicts the, how the suffering servant will usher in the kingdom of God. There we find this, Isaiah 66. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I think what Jesus means by poor in spirit is, uh, I think this is what Jesus means by poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be humble. Yes, humble for our sin before God, but humble in every single area of our lives, including our relationship with others. So why didn't Jesus just use the phrase contrite in spirit here from the original text? And I think he's doing something very uh, clever with the language. Without getting too much into the weeds, the suffering servant section of Isaiah is about how the, sufferer, the servant is uh, identifying with his people. But Jesus, we know, is sinless and therefore does not need contrition. His people, however, do. So where there are two things in Isaiah, humble and contrite in spirit, Jesus combines them here as poor in spirit in such a way that can still apply to both Jesus and his people at the same time. So how are we to understand poor in spirit? This is a whole life humility. This means it permeates all of our relationships. Not just your family, friends, co-workers, but your neighbors, strangers, the poor, and even your enemies. Have you ever met a non-spiritually poor person? They're tough to be around. They are arrogant. I can speak from experience, (laughs) as Anthony alluded. They are arrogant. They think they're the smartest person in the room. Don't listen to others or empathize with them. They're condescending and rarely, if ever, apologize or admit they're wrong. If you know people like this, I don't need to convince you that they are tough to be around. Maybe you are one of these people. Maybe you think it's okay for Christians to be like this. I'm here to tell you it's not. Matthew 23, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Romans 12, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. James 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 18, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. By contrast, spiritually poor people are a joy to be around. They're not arrogant. They don't think more highly of themselves than they ought, which usually means they listen and want to connect and care for other people. And they meet people where they are, even if it makes them look unimpressive. They are not afraid of losing their lofty reputation by doing so because they don't see themselves that way. They can and do apologize when they do wrong without also trying to justify themselves. In a word, they're a delight, this is how the citizens of kingdom, Jesus' kingdom are to be. This is an important beatitude, especially for the theologically astute Christian. Sometimes we can rightly, sorry, wrongly believe that all that matters is right theology instead of right action, as if the Day of Judgment was going to be a theology exam. We forget that the devil could easily pass any theology exam we could. Joe Thorne rightly says, The fool says in his heart, The rightness of my theology makes up for the wrongness of my attitude. I can say with confidence that Jesus would prefer you to be humble than to be knowledgeable and arrogant. The reward for the poor in spirit is that they belong to the kingdom of heaven. It means that they have been transferred from the kingdom of Satan into Christ's glorious kingdom. As I mentioned in the previous chapter of Matthew, Satan tempts Jesus by offering him the kingdoms of this world and their glory. But Satan can't offer something to Jesus he doesn't own. This is why Paul calls Satan the God of this world. We don't often think this way, but everything in this world that is not of the kingdom of Christ mentioned here in the Beatitudes is satanic. And people wrongly think that Satanism is something like occultism. It's not. Satanism is primarily conforming to the patterns of this world and embracing its value systems. It's simply being comfortable in this world. It's as simple and as unassuming as that. Again, with the rewards, Jesus is doing something interesting with the language. He is here using the present tense. He said, blessed are, present tense, for theirs is, present tense. But in the next six, he has a different formula. Blessed are, present tense, for they shall, future tense. So what does this mean? It means that we are blessed now because of the future fulfillment at the end of days. But we are also blessed now because those future realities are currently breaking into the present. Jesus' kingdom is being set up one by one in human hearts around the world right now. If you are a Christian, you know this. Not only do you think you're blessed because God's promise for you uh, in the future, but you feel that blessing coursing through you right now. Do you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Be poor in spirit. The attitude two. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a term we don't use a whole lot either, mourn. We mourn the loss of things we care about. This is why it's often connected to funerals. There are things in this world that are just terrible, from genocide all the way down to stubbing your toe. In many ways, this is a world of loss. This is not the way things are supposed to be. We live under the curse of the fall we are to see that pain and to feel it. To put it bluntly, if you're, if you're really happy about living in this fallen world, then something is wrong with you. The only appropriate response to living under the curse is sorrow. We currently live in a time of positive vibes only, or what I think should be called toxic positivity. We often don't like to recognize our negative emotions, so we often try to sequester them and hope to just take them to our grave. Toxic positivity is part of the reason we have so much anxiety and depression now. We feel like we need to relegate our negative emotions, which only cause, it, cause them to rot and fester within us and to come, and come out in depression and anxiety. Rather, we need a healthy way to deal with negative emotions, and that process is called mourning. It's an honest dealing with negative emotions. We struggle especially with this as Christians We often think that negative emotions and spiritual depression are a sign that something is wrong with us or lacking in our faith. If I were a better Christian, I would just be happier. But Jesus was a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. The Christian life is not supposed to be all joy and laughter. We don't have to do the Sunday smile and tell everyone we're fine when we're not. And yet this disjoint persists in the church. You can especially see this in church music. For some reason, churches today seem to want to exclusively sing happy songs. But look at the psalms. There are joyous psalms, but they're right alongside lamentation psalms, or even both emotions in the same psalm. You can't have one divorced from the other, or it devolves into vapid giddiness. But there's no virtue in being negative either. Sometimes we can go to the opposite extreme and think that there's virtue in negativity and judgmentalism. But that's not true. What we need is to be realistic. We need to feel the bad things. We need to take an honest assessment and to respond with sorrow. But it's not enough to just be sad. You have to be sad about the right things for the right reasons. It should be a God-oriented sorrow. A sorrow for the things that break God's heart. And not only do you have to be sad about the right things, but you must then move on to mourning them. Staring at them right in the face And grieving. This in many cases means weeping. I'm convinced that Christians do not weep enough, especially men who are taught that boys don't cry. But Jesus wept. Was Jesus a real man? Jesus was the truest man. Sadly, we're often taught a caricature of what a man is to be. And if you aren't regularly mourning, it's not because you aren't sad. Everyone is sad. It's likely that you're using things to purge your negative emotions and that's not healthy. If you're, not, if you're weeping over this world, you get it. Properly mourning in our lives is not only healthy for us, it allows us to care for people when they are sad. The church has a tendency to want to pull away from people who are sad, but this is so wrong. Paul tells us that we are to weep with those who weep. If you are sad right now, deep in your heart, the church is the place for you. If you don't see people that want to move toward you, keep looking. They're there. But unfortunately, they are not everywhere in the church. If you're someone who doesn't move toward the sad and hurting, that's a good place to start mourning in your own life. The reward for mourners is that they will be comforted. This is not a counterfeit comfort or a temporary comfort, but an eternal comfort. And isn't this deep down what we all want? Lasting comfort. 2 Thessalonians 2. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Do you want to be comforted like this? Mourn. Beatitude three. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek again is one of those word, those unusual words we don't often use and really don't understand. Merriam-Webster's defines meek as mild, submissive, or moderate, but Jesus was not really any of these. Jesus was bold. He spoke with authority over the Pharisees and was by no means a lukewarm personality. So what is the meekness Jesus is talking about? Look at the way Jesus encountered Satan's kingdom. He opposed it and spoke against it, but when it was clear it was going to turn violent, what did he do? Instead of fighting, he laid down his life. So then what does it mean for us to be meek? Meekness is not weakness. It's confidence in another's strength. That's what Christian meekness is. It is not servileness to others, but submission to God. It means not taking matters into your own hands, but trusting that God will in time. It's a renunciation of self-sufficiency. Someone who commits their will entirely to the ways of God. Meekness of this type can only happen by faith. Normally, the meek don't inherit the earth because people push them around and talk over them and mistreat them and bully them and run roughshod. It's the tough and overbearing that succeed in this world. Weaklings get trampled underfoot. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche understood this well. Nietzsche, who was raised as a Lutheran and understood the Beatitudes, um, he understood them well. It just turns out he hated them. Nietzsche, in his book titled, appropriately, The Antichrist, uh, wrote, What is good? All that heightens the feelings of power in man. What is evil? All that proceeds from weakness. It's no surprise to learn that he was a big influence on Hitler. But he's right, at least, about how the kingdoms of this world operate. What he's wrong about is how there is another kingdom with a stronger king. This combination of words, blessed are the meek, only makes sense if someone stronger than the strong ones, namely God, acts on behalf of the weak ones. If that is true, then real weakness is opposing God and losing. Because of who God is, the one who acts on behalf of the meek, being strong and self assertive is one of the absolutely worst things you can be in this life. And taking things into your own hands, even in God's name, is likewise very problematic. Just look at the Israel of Jesus' day. They were looking for a violent, political messiah. They had had become so corrupt that they were looking to violent means to deliver themselves from Roman rule so they could have their own kingdom once again. When given the option to release either Jesus Messiah or Jesus Barabbas, the violent insurrectionist, they chose the violent insurrectionist. Why? Why? because they thought that God's kingdom was going to come through the force of their hands. Jesus Messiah is here saying no. If you're trying to, or are even okay with God's kingdom being instituted through force, whether violent or political, you are very far from the truth. The last thing Israel wanted was a meek Messiah. I wonder if in America we don't like a meek Messiah either. At the January 6th insurrection of the Capitol, we saw something very similar to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Did you notice all of the flags that had Jesus' name on them at the insurrection, as if Jesus had anything to do with human violence? It was sickening to see, and I hope if you're a Christian, it sickened you as well. Those insurrectionists, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, don't understand the kingdom of God at all. John 18, where Jesus is speaking to Pilate, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Let us not miss this. America loves a show of force and putting fear in our enemies and resting in our own might. But this is not the way of Jesus. In doing so, we show the world that we are not really resting in the one who is truly strong and the one who we should truly be fearing. If we're honest, we often hate meekness. It makes us deeply uncomfortable because we don't like admitting that we don't have ultimate power over our lives. But this is, in fact, the precise thing that Jesus is requiring of us here. At the core of meekness, Jesus is asking whether we trust him and his kingship Or if we do, say we do, but we try to keep our hands on the steering wheel just in case. Jesus is calling us to stop resting in our own strength, but to rest in his instead. Do you want to inherit the earth? Be meek. Beatitude 4. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is again a phrase we don't entirely understand. Some commentators see this phrase as hungering and thirsting, after Christ's righteousness, which is of course a biblical concept. But again, I think what is implied here is something more holistic and full-orbed. Righteousness is having right relationships with God and with others, wanting to do right by them. This includes every person, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, but also the poor and even our enemies, everyone. You can't be right with God if you are not pursuing righteousness with other people. This is also this also includes social righteousness. The law and the prophets abundantly show that we need to have a concern for the poor, the marginalized, the ostracized of society. This includes our obligation to make sure as much as it is within our power to liberate people from oppression, promote equal justice in the law courts, equal treatment of people in our financial system, and to treat all with respect and human dignity as images of God. As John Stott put it, thus Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. If your righteousness as a Christian is only between you and God, or just between you and the people that are close in your life or the ones that you like, you are tragically misunderstanding the God of the Bible. If your faith does not have a social responsibility aspect to it, I say to you with all humility and sincerity, you do not have real faith don't believe me? Tell me, why did God send Israel into exile? The prophets tell us over and over again it was for two sins. Do you know what they are? They are worth knowing. Serving other gods and for not caring for the poor. You can't be right with God while neglecting the poor and marginalized of society. That's why James says in James 2, sojourners, why would we think we are different? I believe evangelicalism has sometimes overemphasized the need to be justified by faith alone, that it has downplayed the requirements of right action. Paul can speak of Abraham as being justified by faith, and James says Abraham is justified by his works. These aren't contradictions. These are two sides of the same coin. Because of Protestantism's correct emphasis on justification by faith, We can forget that faith without works is dead. We, of course, reject the idea of a once-saved-always-saved mentality, but we also reject the idea that once you become a Christian, it does not matter how you live, or or that you don't have obligations to other people. That is just patently false and unbiblical. We are justified by faith alone, but our faith is never alone, as the saying goes. What Jesus' followers are to do is weed out all unrighteousness in their lives by God's grace. Jesus here is not asking for perfection. He is asking for faithful obedience. We won't do this perfectly, but nevertheless, it must be our goal. And this may involve a lot of deep examination and work on our part. This, this means perhaps changing patterns in our lives that have been there for years, even decades, and perhaps even handed down to us for hundreds of years. We must actively seek out any area of our lives where we are not living correctly according to God. This is what we should be hungering and thirsting for. What would your life look like if you were as excited about righteousness as you were about food? That's what Jesus is saying. The reward for hunger and, for hunger and thirst after righteousness is that we will be satisfied. This means that as you're, you see good behavior flow out of yourself, of course coming from God's work in you, you start to feel satisfied. It feels good to do good to people. It feels good to, re- to live rightly. That's what shalom is, life wholeness. And that's what we'll experience in heaven, Second Peter 3. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So many moments of anguish melt away when, the thing, when things start going right in our life, especially with our relationships. And conversely, when our relationships are out of whack with each other or with God, we feel that pain deeply. Think about what people talk about at the end of their lives and what mattered most to them. It's not what they accomplished or the money they had or the cool stuff that they had, but the relationships in their lives. And you'd be surprised how much your life can change for the better when you choose to live as if God's way is the best way for you. Do you want to be satisfied? Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Beatitude 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is mercy? We think we understand this one, at least, right? Or do we? What is mercy and how is it different from things like forgiveness and grace? They can often be linked, but they're also distinct. Forgiveness has to do with releasing someone from a debt that they've incurred. And grace refers to a gift that is unmerited. And mercy is relieving misery in someone's life. They all have spiritual meanings and non-spiritual meanings, and both are used in the Bible. Here, I think Jesus is using the non spiritual meaning. Um, It's worth noting that every use of the word mercy in the Gospel of Matthew is talking about relieving physical or financial pain in someone's life. I think, as with the other Beatitudes, Jesus is thinking of a more full orbed view. It's not just spiritual mercy, forgiving someone who has sinned against you, although it can be included as well, but also what has rightly been called mercy ministries. What does it mean to be merciful? Being merciful means intentionally relieving the misery in other people's lives. Jesus is referring to people whose desire it is when they see others in pain, they want to move toward them and help alleviate that misery. This could be physical, emotional, spiritual, and yes, financial. It's no coincidence that Christianity is the origin of the hospital. It's helping others even and especially when they don't deserve it. You should be merciful to people who do not deserve that mercy. That is, unless you think you deserve God's mercy towards you. You can tell a whole lot about the gods a person serves by the way they treat others. If you only help others when you think they deserve it, you do not understand the gospel or the God of the Bible. And this is not just a nice attitude or kind words or a smile, although it can be those. It's radical action. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. As a recap, a Jewish man is robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. Two Jewish men, one of them a priest, pass by and do nothing. A third man, a Samaritan, a hated race by the Jews of Jesus' day, sees the man in trouble and moves toward him. He bandages the man up, he takes him to an inn, the hospital of their day, and pays two days' worth of wages for his care. At the end of the parable, the good Samaritan is identified correctly as being a good neighbor. And what word is used to describe him? Merciful. How much more effective would our representation of the gospel be if people heard us not only talking about God's mercy, but saw us living it out in our lives, even at great cost to us? The reward for that mercy is that they will receive mercy. They will be ushered into a kingdom where there is no more suffering. They will be relieved of their pain. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you want to be like Jesus, wipe away other people's tears. Do you want to receive mercy from God? Be merciful. Beatitude 6. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does pure in heart mean? Again, we don't use this one either. It's a little sad to me that we've had the Beatitudes in English forever and they've not fully infused our language. I, I think that's just worth noting. Um, people wrongly think that pure in heart means sinless. but of course does not. No one but Jesus is sinless. Pure in heart is to be pure in motive. It means that the deepest part of your heart on the inside is what matches your outside behavior, that your outsides match your insides. John Stott put it this way, their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. In Greek theater, a hypocrite was an actor wearing a mask. They are acting differently than their motive. We put on psychological masks to hide the impure motives in our hearts as well. Masks are a way for us to harbor evil. The Pharisees were the poster children for this. Jesus compared them to people who would only wash the outside of their cup and leave the inside filthy. The pure in heart don't need masks because they are people of good faith. Their desire is to mean what they say because their intention is to treat others well. They have nothing to hide they act how they feel. It's scary to take the masks off because we don't like what's beneath them. That's why we wear them in the first place. When we seek to remove our masks, our self-perception plummets. We get an all-too-honest look at ourselves, and it's disturbing. It leads to be... But uh, I'm here to tell you that's a good thing because it leads to being poor in spirit. This does not mean we have to be an open book with everyone, but it's not that far from it. We, we need discernment of when to speak and when not to, but we should also be honest and candid with others about our struggles. Then we can be better at mourning with them and them with us. I think this is perhaps the beatitude that's missing the most today. That's because it's almost impossible to be pure in heart on social media. The whole thing is a facade. It's so easy to be fake. You can't live a fully open and honest life apart from letting people into your whole messy life not just the shiny, happy parts. I won't say it's impossible, but it's close. While we're on topic, I'll also mention briefly that I'm concerned with the church moving more and more online. You cannot do church online. You must be involved really and truly flesh and blood in people's lives. You have, a, you have servant obligations to other believers, and you cannot do those from afar. The reward for the pure in heart is that they shall see God. This may seem odd at first, but I think Jesus is referring to Psalm 24. Which says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who, has a clean, who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Like where Hebrews 12 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for, the, and for holiness with which no one will see the Lord. God will not, indeed cannot, dwell with unrighteousness. The only ones who will see him are the righteous, as opposed to the wicked. Do you, want to be, do you want to see God? Be pure in heart. Beatitude 7. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, what does peacemaker mean? Again, language we don't really use, sadly. Peacemaker as opposed to what? Well, first, peacemaker as opposed to peacekeeper. Peacekeepers want to not rock the boat. They are conflict avoidant. Peacemakers doesn't mean conflict avoidant. It means quite the opposite. Look at Jesus. Peacemakers, uh, sorry, Jesus at times was downright confrontational, especially with the Pharisees. But there's a difference between conflict and war. Conflict is a disagreement of ideas that seeks to correct people for their well-being. War is wanting to hurt and potentially even destroy people. Peacemaker is also as opposed to war maker. Because of the fall, war happened between all humans by nature. Animosity can be seen immediately in the story between Adam and Eve. And then their firstborn son killed their secondborn son, and violence spiraled out of control until the earth became so violent that God sent a flood upon the earth. Because of the fall, war is deep in our hearts. But Jesus is saying it doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't. So, what is a peacemaker? A peacemaker is someone who sees animosity between humans and actively tries to reverse it. Not just in your own family and sphere of influence, but everywhere you see animosity, both when it directly involves you and when it doesn't. Now it takes wisdom and discernment to know when to engage and to what level, but this is what we are to do. First Peter three, quoting the Psalms says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So how do you accomplish this? By studying peace. We must study peace because it is not native to us. How quickly we are to study war. The book Art, The Art of War by Sun Tzu has been a perennial bestseller because it's the classic study of how to succeed at war. If only we had spent as much time studying peace. You can study peace. You can grow in whatever direction you put effort in. It reminds me of the old spiritual down by the riverside. I ain't going to study war no more. Studying peace is hard. We have to learn how to have empathy for our enemies, listen to them with an open mind, affirm the truth that's in them, affirm their virtues, and learn how to de-escalate tension with them. It's difficult, but it's what Jesus says his people are to do. This means making peace with our political, And yes, even our theological enemies. But peacemaking is not peace at any price. It's not just peace for the sake of peace. It's peace around the truth. But it's also recognizing that the truth may be on both sides of the dispute. It's easy to paint one side as completely wrong and the other side as completely right, especially when we are personally involved. But it is rarely so cut and dry. We must be prepared to hear the truth in others, even our enemies. This is our only way forward for the healing of division in America. If America and the church are to be healed, it will only be by humble peacemakers. But, you might say, aren't we to fight against evil? Aren't we to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints? Didn't Jesus contend with the Pharisees? Yes, he did, and so should we. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, knew that it was not humans, but Satan that we are really fighting. Jesus called the Pharisees sons of the devil. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Likewise, Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This means we are to see past our human adversaries to see the satanic forces behind them. Have you ever noticed that Satan drops out of the biblical narrative pretty abruptly after Genesis 3? Pay attention the next time you go through the Bible. He's almost non-existent after that with a few exceptions. Why? It's not because he's not active. He's very active in human history. It's because he works behind the scenes through humans. He's an evil puppet master. Satan loves seeing people war because he hates people. You don't defeat him by hurting other humans. That's what he wants, Paradoxically, you defeat him by bringing peace between people. Do you want to war against Satan? Do you want to contend for the faith? Then bring peace to humans. The reward for peacemakers is that they shall be called sons of God. Sons of is a Hebrew idiom which means saying something is like something, following after or of the qualities of. So it's like the phrase, the sons of the prophets. It means that you come after them and have their qualities. So peacemakers are like God. Why? Because God is the original peacemaker. God wants peace with humanity. This is why he sent his son to die on the cross. If we understand God's heart in this way, we will also want to make peace with people. Do you want to be called a son or daughter of God? Be a peacemaker. But what if people don't want peace and are instead willing to hurt you Let's look at the final beatitude. Beatitude 8. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Most of the commentators rightly, I believe, combine these two beatitudes, and we'll see why in a moment. Surprisingly or not surprisingly, this is the one that we actually understand from the list <laughs> there's no deciphering necessary when people seek to live like Jesus persecution results ironically peacemakers are seen by the world as disturbers of the peace in roman era they thought the worst things of christians there were rumors that christians had love feasts with their brothers and sisters where they ate the body and blood of their lord And the Romans decided to take all of those literally and thought some pretty terrible things about Christians. People today think some pretty terrible things about Christians as well. Some justified, some unjustified. But if you seek to follow Jesus in this life, you are likely to face mockery, avoidance, being called names. Perhaps your business will suffer. Perhaps you'll lose friends, or family will stop talking to you. Perhaps your property will be destroyed. Or you'll maybe even be violently attacked, or perhaps even killed. Who knows the future? Persecution of some sort should be expected. All of the heroes of the faith have been persecuted in every age of human history. We should not be expecting anything different. But that is because to be persecuted for righteousness' sake is to be opposed by the people who have a heart connection to the kingdom of Satan. They have a vested interest in that kingdom succeeding, and when they see true righteousness... They attack it because it points out how unrighteous they are. Seemingly normal, congenial people can become antagonistic and even violent. And the more time you come in line, the more that you come in line with Christ's kingdom, the more Satan will oppose you. He does not like defectors. Are you ready for that? The more you live your life in accord with Satan's kingdom, the less trouble he gives you. This can make it tempting to compromise your faith as a Christian, but that's exactly where Satan wants you. Don't do that. Instead, let your light shine before men. Don't hide your allegiance to Christ to lessen persecution. That is no real allegiance. We can't have it both ways. Either our reward is on earth or it is in heaven. 2 Timothy 2, sorry, Second Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should not fear persecution. We should fear fearing persecution we also have to make sure that we are not being persecuted because of unrighteousness sake within ourselves. We have to make sure that our ego does not get in the way. 1 Peter 4, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And if you face persecution in person, online, wherever, it is important not to return evil for evil. Don't return name calling for name calling or slander for slander. Or violence for violence. So, what are you to do when other people harm you or want to harm you? Trust that God will vindicate you. Romans twelve, beloved, never avenge yourselves; believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." Says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him; if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become. Do, do not overcome. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Believe God when he says that vengeance belongs to him. I think this beatitude requires extra faith, which is why it's stated twice. Jesus is doubling down in case anyone misheard him. The first one, uh, again, he's doing something interesting with the language. The first one has the third person like the others. Blessed are they. When the second, in the second time, he makes it more personal. He switches to the second person. Blessed are you. And then he continues with the second person for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like a litmus test. If you can accept this, then listen on. This persecution beatitude is where you really put your money where your mouth is. This is where it gets real. This is the only one we don't want to pray for. (laughs) We can pray to be more meek or more merciful, but who's praying to be more persecuted? But perhaps we should, or at least be praying for faithfulness in the face of persecution, and even pray that we may face it with joy. Listen to this insane verse from Acts 5. And when they, the Jewish council, had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, meaning the name of Jesus. If you, don't fear persecu- if you don't fear persecution even unto death, you have incredible freedom, and that freedom leads to joy in the Christian life. Why would you let yourself be persecuted this way? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth suffering for. The reward for the persecuted is citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Haven't we heard this one before? Yes, it book bookends with the first beatitude. It's Jesus saying that all of the rewards are part and parcel of one another. They aren't separate rewards or separate people. They're not a la carte. You either get all of these or none of these. You can't say, I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness, but I don't want to be persecuted. You can't pick and choose. However, Jesus does add that your reward will be great in heaven if you are persecuted. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you want to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom? Be faithful in persecution. We have now reached the end of the Beatitudes. And as I said, this is a very challenging passage. It requires the entirety of our lives to be flipped upside down. And because no two people are alike, we might have varied responses to this passage. This might lead to some, some to joy for seeing God's kingdom as a kingdom of righteousness and not compromise. Or maybe you've never heard of this Jesus and want to start following him as your king. He welcomes you with open arms. Come to him. Others may need to repent and to confess to God and others that they have not been living this way. They may need to throw out a large percentage of their ideologies, value systems, and lifestyle, even if they've been a Christian for decades. Perhaps you need to change your view of how you should treat other people, especially the poor. Others might feel discouraged and need to be encouraged to keep walking with God nanosecond by nanosecond through a difficult time in church history. They may need to be reminded that God's plan for his church has not changed one iota. This is the same blueprint for God's people everywhere, in every age, good times and bad. Others might really feel the weight and challenge of this passage and need to be reminded that it is only by Jesus' spirit and power that we even have the strength to live this way. And thank God that is not of our own strength. Whatever your response here, I hope that it's based around the belief that King Jesus is worth a level of devotion that requires the entirety of your life. Let us pray. King Jesus, we ask that you would make us poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and faithful under persecution. By your grace, And in your name we pray. Amen.